Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 48, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released, um, I think, in April this year. And the book Spiritual Grit, released last year, along with uh, two companion devotions, which, by the way, that little trio makes for a great a little Christmas gift, the main book, Spiritual Grit, and then uh, there's a devotion for adults and a devotion for teenagers. So you'll find a link for that on our podcast page. I'll give you the the uh, address for that at the end of the podcast today. But also the Jesus-Centered Life a few years ago, the, the podcast, this podcast is based on that book, and I'm editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. We also just, by the way, just released, uh, I think a month ago or so now, the Jesus-Centered Planner. And as I mentioned before, it's it's quickly selling out. So if you'd like to get your hands on one of those and give it to somebody you love for a, a great Christmas gift, you can do that as well. We actually have a whole like suite of Jesus-centered resources that uh, to choose from. And we'll have links to all of them on the episode page. This is season four, episode 47, by the way. And it's you just head over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for that episode and you'll find all the links you need. And those uh, other other resources include devotions and coloring books and all kinds of things. So please do check that out. Today is the 14th episode in our series called The Beeline Practices. Those beeline practices take up a, a good chunk of the, the Jesus-Centered Life book. They're essentially ways of leaning into life that draw us into closer orbit with Jesus. They're just habit patterns that tend to help us to have a tighter and tighter orbit around him in our life. And when that happens, our life changes. And so we're exploring each one of those beeline practices um, in this series. And the word beeline, by the way, comes from Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher who lived his life always uh, finding a way from wherever he was to wherever Jesus is. And he called that making a beeline to Jesus. So when he preached or taught, uh, whatever text he started with or whatever issue or topic he was starting with, he always found the road that led to Jesus. And he called that making a beeline to Jesus. And that's what these practices do. We, we find our way to Jesus no matter what. So, so that's what we're doing today. And today in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of where would Jesus be? That's WWJB instead of WWJD. Uh, it's instead of where would, what would Jesus do? It's where would Jesus be? This is a hugely important uh, kind of upending truth in our life with Jesus. So just consider this progression. Jesus, we know, has a transformational presence. Just to be in his proximity means that you're radiated with his healing and his wholeness and his salvation. Just to be around Jesus is to be upended, to be rescued, to be healed, to be restored. So his presence itself, uh, where he goes, he brings these kingdom of God transformational uh, sort of influences with him, affecting and infecting everyone around him. And so 
he keeps telling his disciples before he heads to the cross that it's actually good that he's going to be going away because his spirit will inhabit their heart when he does. And they really don't understand the gravity of this. Neither would we if we had heard him say this to us. But what it means is that uh, he's, he's telling them that when he leaves, the spirit will come and then they will carry the very spirit of Jesus in them wherever they go. So when you read the stories of Jesus and the places he goes to and the people he encounters, what he's really saying, the reason why this is such good news is that he's about to plant himself in every one of those people who's committed their life to him. He's about to plant himself in all of them. And they're going to then spread out into their circles of influence and broaden the impact of his presence in the world. So uh, the, his influence now is going to be spread through the, you know, what we know is that he calls the parts of his body, which is you and me and everyone else who follows Jesus in the world. We're all little parts of his body. And he's come up with this shrewd and brilliant plan that not only his crucifixion saves us and builds a bridge back to relationship with God, but it signals the, the oncoming of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and extends his presence throughout the world. So he's, in doing this, he's really upended the conventional way we think about our purpose in life and how we can impact others for good. So instead of asking, what should I do relative to our purpose in life? The question really is, where do I need to be? Because our purpose really is to carry the presence of Jesus into the places he calls us to. So Put it, put it in another way, if, if we carry in us the sort of radioactive presence of Jesus, our mission is to bring that radioactive influence wherever it's needed so that it radiates the situations and people that we, uh, that we encounter in our own little nooks and crannies. So to get at the core of this reality, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to have story time. <laughs> so the great Leo Stol Tolstoy, who's author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina and many other great novels in history, um, decided to write a little parable called The Three Questions. And the, the reason he wrote this little parable um, was he, he'd written, he originally wrote it for a publication that uh, he was hoping could raise funds for the victims of an anti-Jewish crackdown in uh, one of the Russian cities. So what Tolstoy was trying to do is, uh, because he, of his great fame, he was going to write a little parable, give it to this publication. People would then buy the publication, and the funds from that purchase would go to help the victims who were, had suffered from this anti-Jewish crackdown. And so he had already, Tolstoy had already written an open letter to the Tsar of Russia accusing his government of being directly responsible for this massacre. And here he's, he's trying to um, be pragmatic help to those who had survived this or whose uh, loved ones had, had died as a result of this to raise some money to help them. So, so it's good to understand the context of, of, of this story and why he was writing it, but it truly is a parable it, it's, it's, you'll see that it's, it's a, a longer parable than Jesus told, but it's in the same kind of structure. So I'm going to read you the parable. It's going to take five, six, seven minutes to read it. So settle back and get ready to listen to this. And then what we're going to do is 
after we've read the three questions, we're going to make some ties to uh, how, how Jesus uh, um, lived out the message of Tolstoy's parable. We're going to make some ties to that. So let's get started. The story of three questions. It starts off with the three questions. When is the right time? Who are the right people? And what is the most important thing to do? It once occurred to a certain king that if he always knew just when to undertake everything he did, and which were the right and which were the wrong people to deal with, and above all, if he always knew what was the most important thing to do, he would never fail in anything. Having thus thought, the king proclaimed throughout his realm that he would bestow a large reward on anyone who would teach him how to know the proper moment for every deed, how to know which were the most essential people, and how not to err in deciding which pursuits were of the greatest importance. So learned men began coming to the king, but they all gave different answers to his questions. In reply to the first question, some said that in order to know the right time for every action, one must draw up a schedule of days, months, and years and strictly adhere to it. Only in this way, they said, could everything be done at the proper time. Others said it was not possible to decide in advance what to do and when to do it, that one must not allow himself to be distracted by vain amusements, but must be attentive to everything that happens and do whatever is required. A third group said that no matter how attentive the king might be to what was going on, it was impossible for one man to rightly decide the time for every action, and they ought to have the council, a council of wise men and act according to their advice. Now, a fourth group said that there were certain matters which required immediate decision, leaving no time to determine by means of consultation whether or not it was the right time to undertake them. In order to know this, one would have to know in advance what was going to happen, which is something that only a magician can know. Therefore, in order to know the right time for every action, one must consult the magicians. Well, the answers to the second question also varied. Some said that the people the king most needed were his administrators. Some said the priests, and some said the physicians, while others said the warriors were the most essential. And the answers to the third question as to what was the most important pursuit were equally diverse. Some said that science was the most important thing in the world. Some said military skill, and others religious worship. The answers were all different. Therefore, the king agreed with none of them and rewarded no one. In order to find the true answer to the questions, he decided to consult a hermit who was famous for his wisdom. The hermit never left the forest where he lived, and there he received none but simple folk. The king therefore dressed himself as one of the people, and dismounting before he reached the hermit's dwelling, he left his knights behind and went on alone. The king found the hermit digging a garden in front of his hut. When he saw the king, the hermit greeted him and immediately returned to his digging. He was thin and frail, and each time he thrust his spade into the ground and turned a little clod of earth, he breathed heavily. The king approached him and said, I have come to you, wise hermit, to ask you for the answers to three questions. How can I know which is the time I ought to heed, not allowing it to slip by only to be regretted later? Who are the most essential people? those to whom I ought to give the greatest attention, and what are the most important pursuits, which therefore ought to be undertaken first? The hermit listened to the king, but gave him no answer. He merely spat on his hands and started digging again. You have exhausted yourself, the king said. Give me the spade. I'll work for a while. Well, thanks, said the hermit. 
He handed him the spade and sat down on the ground. After digging two beds, the king stopped and repeated his question. The hermit did not answer, but got up and held out his hand for the spade, saying, No, you rest, and I'll work. But the king did not give him the space. He went on digging. An hour passed, and then another. The sun had begun to sink behind the trees when the king stuck the spade in the ground and said, I came to you, wise man, for answers to my questions. If you can give me none, tell me so, and I shall return home. Here comes someone running, said the hermit. Let's see who it is. The king looked around and saw a bearded man running out of the woods. The man held his hands pressed to his stomach and blood flowed from between his fingers. He ran to the king and fell fainting to the ground where he lay motionless, weakly moaning. The king and the hermit opened the man's clothing. There was a large wound in his stomach. The king washed it as well as he could and bandaged it with his own handkerchief and the hermit's towel. But the flow of blood did not abate. Again and again, the king removed the bandage soaked with warm blood, washed it, and rebandaged the wound. When the blood at last ceased flowing, the wounded man revived and asked for water. The king brought fresh water and gave him a drink. Meanwhile, the sun had set and it had grown cool. The king, with the hermit's help, carried the wounded man into the hut and laid him on the bed. He closed his eyes and grew still. The king was so tired from his walk and the work he had done that he lay down on the threshold and fell asleep. And he slept so soundly through the short summer night that when he woke in the morning, it was some time before he realized where he was and recalled the bearded stranger lying on the bed who was now gazing intently at him with luminous eyes. Forgive me, said the bearded man in a faint voice when he saw the king was awake and looking at him. Well, I do not know you enough, have nothing to forgive you, replied the king. You do not know me, but I know you. I am your enemy, and I swore to take vengeance on you for killing my brother and seizing my property. I knew you had come alone to see the hermit, and I resolved to kill you on your way back. But when the whole day passed and you did not return, I left my ambush and came upon your knights instead. They recognized me, fell upon me, and wounded me. I escaped from them, but I should have bled to death if you had not cared for my wound. I intended to kill you, and you have saved my life. Now, if I live, and if you wish it, I will serve you as your most faithful slave and bid my sons to do the same. Please forgive me. The king was happy to be so easily reconciled with his enemy, and he not only forgave him, but promised to return his property and send his own physician and servants to attend him. Having taken leave of the wounded man, the king went out to look for the hermit. Before leaving him, he wished for the last time to ask him to answer his questions. The hermit was on his knees in the yard, sowing seeds in the beds that had been dug the day before. The king approached him and said, For the last time, wise men, I ask you to answer my questions. But you have already been answered, said the hermit, squatting on his thin calves and looking up at the king who stood before him. Well, how have I been answered, asked the king. How, repeated the hermit, had you not taken pity on my weakness yesterday and dug these beds for me? Instead of turning back alone, that fellow would have assaulted you, and you would have regretted not staying with me. Therefore, the most important time was when you were digging the beds. I was the most important man, and the most important pursuit was to do good to me. And later, when that man came running to us, the most important time was when you were taking care of him. For if you had not bound up his wounds, 
he would have died without having made peace with you. Therefore, he was the most important man, and what you did for him was the most important deed. Remember then, there is only one important time, now. And it is important because it is the only time we have dominion over ourselves. And the most important man is he with whom you are. For no one can know whether or not he will ever have dealings with any other man. And the most important pursuit is to do good to him, since it is for that purpose alone that man was sent into this life. There you have Tolstoy's The Three Questions. So it's a profound story with a surprising takeaway at the end. The answers to those three questions, again, when is the right time, who are the right people, and what is the most important thing to do? In the end, the king answers himself, and the hermit points it out to him. There's only one important time, and that's now. And there's only one really important person, and that's with the person with whoever you are with at that moment. And the most important pursuit is always to do the next good thing that you know to do for that person, whoever it is. So let's explore the way Jesus offers his own presence to discover what that means for us in light of this story. So this story really answers the question that, or answers the tension between what would Jesus do and where would Jesus be? So the hermit is trying to tell the king and Tolstoy is trying to tell us that the most important decision that we make is where we will be. And in that place of where we are, we serve the people around us. Essentially, we're bringing the presence, the goodness of Jesus with us in whatever situation we are. And in that situation, bringing the presence of Jesus to impact our present reality is the most important thing for us to do. So thought it would be interesting to take a look at a story we've looked at before, but to look at it in a bit of a different way this time in light of the parable we just read. This is a, a story from Luke chapter, let's see, Luke chapter eight, and this is verses 40 through 56. In my Jesus-centered Bible, this section is headed by the subhead of Jesus heals in response to faith. But there's a lot going on in this little passage. It's a surprising story. There's, it's unlike any other encounter that Jesus has in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and start reading. It's uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. And then a man named Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. Well, as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who, who touched me? Jesus asked. Well, everyone denied it, and Peter said, uh, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. Well, when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. 
And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. That last little thing there, when Jesus insists that they not tell anyone what had happened, if you, if you uh, track back to what he said to the crowd, that she's only sleeping, stop weeping, that's his cover for what happened here. He doesn't yet want them to, he doesn't yet want this raising of this little girl from the dead to spread like wildfire. He is pacing his ministry and his influence until the right time comes for the cross. So uh, early on here, he's, he's trying to put the cap on uh, the extraordinary uh, uh, impact of this kind of miracle. So he kind of covers his story by telling the crowd that she's just sleeping so that when the people see her um, awake and alive again, they could say, oh, well, he did say that she was just sleeping. So we, uh, something, we must have missed something here. So, but in fact, of course, Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. So what can we uh, pull out of this story then? So let, let's, let's go through a few things that uh, it's, it's almost like uh, casting a net into the ocean of this story and seeing what our net catches uh, when we are paying attention to what Jesus is doing here. The first little fish we catch with our net is that we are present to the present need, meaning we don't allow the normal urgencies of life to distract us from what's happening right in front of us. So think about the pressure that's on Jesus. If you were a normal person and you are needed immediately to save the life of somebody and you're moving quickly toward the, the home where you're going to keep this girl from dying and somebody touches your cloak and you realize somehow power has gone out of you and you stop. Why would you stop? It, the woman doesn't even want to be focused on and yet Jesus stops because he recognizes the present need in front of him. And it, this would be so easy to, to blow past this, obviously. And yet Jesus risks so much to stop and plunge into this woman's story. So he's recognizing that wherever he goes, life follows. And he's not worried the way we would be about the urgent need on the other side. Plus, um, he recognizes that as he's stopping, that this man whose daughter is about to die is, is going to go crazy because 
he, he's watching Jesus stop when he needs to go as fast as he can to his house. He, and he can't do anything about it. Uh, Jesus decides to stop and engage this woman. And not only that, she does find her physical healing, obviously, but Jesus recognizes because he is present to her that he, she has a much deeper healing that she needs, the healing of shame that she's lived with her whole life. And so he intends to release her from both things. She's already found release from her physical ailment. He intends to do a deeper healing. And this, this of course, is, is what it really means to bring um, our presence in the presence of Jesus into every life situation, that our, our antenna are up. Instead of looking uh, beyond the present moment, we're in the present moment. And we are relaxed in that if there's a need in the moment, we are going to address it as Jesus did. So the first little fish we catch is to, that we are present to the present need, whatever it is. That's the beeline practice, uh, one aspect of the beeline practice of where would Jesus be? We're carrying him with us into every situation. So the second little fish we catch is that we recognize that there's deeper needs than the surface needs we can see. So again, he sees the, the, the woman's surface need is easy to see. She's been shunned for it. She's suffered for 12 years with a constant bleeding. So that's easy to see. But the, in order to pry past that, every person has another need underlying that. So I was just meeting with a, with a youth pastor friend of mine who has started to meet with a teenager who wanted to, quote unquote, be discipled by him. And so far, he's met with him five or six times. This young guy doesn't seem to be that interested in Jesus, but he's very, very, very interested in girls. He wants my friend to help him understand how he can get a girlfriend. And he's very fixated on it, and he's very worried that he'll live his whole life alone. And that's what's driving him to want to find a girlfriend. So my friend, the youth pastor, is sharing this with me. And this young guy's surface need is he needs a girlfriend. And he wants my friend to help him learn how, to, how he can snag, snag one of those. <laughs> but my friend and I were talking about, well, what's the need underneath that? Because uh, he's a 16-year-old guy who's afraid he's going to be alone the rest of his life. Where's that coming from? So the only way to uncover the deeper need is to ask more and better questions of people like this, this young guy. Um, ask, asking why questions more than what questions helps us to drill down underneath the surface. So in the case of this young guy, what we would ask, start asking is, well, why do you think that you might be alone the rest of your life when you're only 16? Where, where did that belief come from or that fear come from? And then he answers. And maybe he, maybe he says, well, um, I've never had a girlfriend before. And the, the thing that scares me the most is just being alone. And then you could ask, why does being alone scare you so much? Um, and you just keep asking why questions to get at the need underneath the need. Most people only present the need that they feel is um, acceptable to present, that doesn't require too much vulnerability. But they always have a need underneath the surface need. And the only way we can get at that is to pry a little bit. Um, I've been doing, I've been prying into people's lives for a long time now, even with strangers. And I've discovered that in the entire time that I've been 
asking people why questions about their story, I've never had a single person um, refuse to answer my question. Um, in fact, uh, I have many examples of conversations with complete strangers that I've just met where I appropriately ask uh, successive why questions where they have shared and revealed things to me that they haven't even shared with their best friends. And it's simply because nobody has been persistent in, a, in an appropriate way and asked them the, the kinds of why questions that really get at, this, at the depth of their story. I've had so many people who will share things that are, that are the real healing they need deep down inside. And what do we do then? Is it our job to then heal that thing? No. Our part of the partnership here with Jesus is simply to surface those issues into the light, to get what, what's in the darkness into the light. Because when it's in the light, Jesus can do something with it. When it's not in the light and it's in the person's unconscious, uh, unconscious or it's been hidden from, from, their, from their everyday life because it's just buried so deeply, it's hard for Jesus to do something about that, to to wrangle with that. So our job is to just try to surface those things so that then Jesus with that person can begin the healing process, whatever it is. And in the case of this story, once the woman's uh, surface story is out, um, and then he outs her real healing by not letting her get away, get away from the crowd, get away from him, um, where she just wants to slink into the background, he doesn't let her get away because he wants to surface her shame in the light, to free her from it permanently. And that's what he does. So there's always deeper needs than the surface needs we can see. So we need to find a way to dig past the surface to get to those. The third thing is we don't bind Jesus by the limitations that seem obvious to us. We don't bind Jesus by the limitations that seem obvious to us. So well, let me give you an example of this. So in uh, in our family, one of the things we have to deal with on a rather frequent basis is the reality of teenage suicide. The reason is that the school that both of my daughters have gone to here in the Denver area has the highest rate of suicide in the state. So um, two or three times a year, we are confronted with another student in their school um, committing suicide. It is a trauma that the kids in this school um, have to deal with all the time. And just last week, um, we were talking at the dinner table about uh, a, a young person who my daughter um, has a connection to, a relationship with, and this guy has been starting to talk about taking his own life. And we were trying to wrestle out um, what we needed to do. Is this at the stage at which we need to call Safe to Tell, which is a, uh, it's a telephone service that you can call anonymously and tell, tell about someone, a young person who is contemplating suicide, and then the authorities will get involved. The police will visit this, this young person's home and talk to the parents and see what the situation is. It's, it's the start of the process of the young person entering into kind of a, an elevated uh, um, uh, progression of care so that if he really is um, serious about taking his own life, he can get the help he needs right now. So we are, when, once you make this call, you set in motion a lot of stuff that, that is 
that puts the family in upheaval. All of a sudden you have a policeman at your front door. So it's a, a very uh, careful decision you have to make about whether this situation um, needs to be addressed that way right away. And if we think that uh, we are uh, bound by our own limitations, then we might offer up either a knee-jerk response or a numb response. But when we believe that, the, that Jesus is not bound by our limitations, we can say either way. We can say, let's wait um, and not yet call the safe to tell number because uh, the evidence doesn't show that this kid has progressed along this path enough to be a real, this, this could simply be him wanting to gain attention from this or something like that. If we decided that, we would be then simultaneously trusting Jesus to come alongside this kid. And if, they, and if he is in trouble and we've miscalculated, that he can help even in the midst of our miscalculation, that he's not bound by these limitations. And in the story, the, the, the limitation that everyone understands is that this little girl needs to be saved before she dies because once she's dead, nothing can be done. But Jesus isn't bound by that limitation. Death does not scare him. He can still do something. Even if she passes away, he can still do something. So in his mind, he is not uh, torturing the father whose daughter is, is uh, needing healing. He's recognizing that when he brings his presence to his home, no matter what situation she's in, it's not going to be daunting for him because death isn't his limitation. And so um, in our life, we, we live as though Jesus is not bound by our limitations, that we trust him to go beyond our limitations, whatever that might look like. All right, number four, we believe the impossible because Jesus is not bound by the possible. So sure, our influence and strength is limited, but the Jesus who lives in us has unlimited capacity. And that means that the things that we think are impossible are, of course, not impossible for Jesus. So we don't make that our own limiting factor. Yes, we have limitations, but our trust in Jesus brings us past the possible into the impossible. Uh, fifth, we resist the lure of hurry, of the myth that everything depends on us. This is the fifth little fish we catch in our net. We resist the lure of hurry. Um, and behind that is a myth that everything depends on us. So if everything depends on Jesus, we can afford to trust his agency more than our own. If you understand what I mean there. Um, we can trust that his movement is more important than our own movement. So in that, uh, when we are uh, trusting that, that he will pursue, um, we remember that Jesus never treats people as if they're just a face in the crowd. Um, in the, in the case, case of this woman, um, he's surrounded by so many people. And when he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, well, Jesus, how, how could we possibly know that? You're surrounded by so many people. But Jesus doesn't see the crowd in this situation. He wants to know the one who has touched him. Yes, lots of people have crowded around him, but only one has touched him in the way that he's talking about. And he stops to pay attention to the one. Um, so, so in 
finding that woman in the crowd, he is once again reiterating his parable of the 99 sheep that you leave on the hillside to go off and find the one who's been caught in the brambles and separated from the herd. Jesus tells this parable to describe the heart of God, that he is comfortable leaving the crowd on the side of the hill to graze on the grass, to go after the one who needs him. He's comfortable making that shift. So uh, we live our lives in the spirit of Jesus when we focus on the individual always, not the crowd. So it's easy to lose ourselves in the majority opinion or the greater, need, the, the greater numerical need we see in front of us. But Jesus doesn't operate that way. He focuses on the, uh, the individual in the crowd and pays attention to individual needs, not crowd needs. All right, number six, the sixth fish to catch in our net. Leave the where of the safely grazing masses to pursue the where of the wandered, uh, wandered away individual, even when it's inconvenient and costly and even dangerous. So going back to that uh, parable again, where is the shepherd in that parable? Well, he's with the 99. He's with his flock. But when he recognizes a need for the one sheep that's been caught and separated from the herd, he leaves the where of the, the safe crowd to enter into the danger and adventure of the wandered away one. Um, so when the shepherd leaves, he's not sure what he's going to face. Uh, sheep that have been caught in the brambles and separated from the herd are in danger. There's predators that are after them. And that shepherd will then have to face those predators for sure when he comes alongside that, that lost sheep. So we leave the safely grazing masses to go after that wandered individual, and it could be costly and dangerous for us. That's what Jesus is modeling here. So when we ask ourselves, where would Jesus be? Well, he would be wherever the, the individual is who needs help. And entering into that environment is going to cost us for sure. That's why when we follow Jesus and get close to him, we get his good shepherd's heart. And what does a good shepherd do? They lay down their life for their sheep. And the, the same is true for us. As we get close to Jesus, we get infected by his heart. And his where, the dark places where the sheep are caught, it now becomes our where. And we're drawn to those environments where uh, people need us, even though it's costly and dangerous. All right. So the last thing, the last two things here, uh, number seven, see the unique value of every single sheep. Um, and we don't let one stray um, because the whole herd would suffer in the absence of that one. So, <clears throat> so we recognize the inestimable value of the one, and that's why we, we don't do math the same way that the world does math. We see every person with uh, inestimable value. Therefore, it's always worth it to go after the one, um, even though you have to leave the crowd behind, because we don't do math the same way. All right, the last one, we lay down our life for those who can never hope to repay our gift and may not ever even acknowledge the cost of our gift. This is when, when we do this as Jesus did this um, in, in this scenario where we, he's uh, slowing down the stop to take care of this, um, 
this bleeding woman full of shame, um, he's risking a lot in that moment. He's risking being misunderstood and, and the, the little girl dying, which she does. All kinds of things um, are a consequence of his behavior. And, and uh, when he does this, he does this because he, he wants to give, not because he's interested in a transaction. He's not looking for even this woman to go over the top and thank him for what she's done. For, for what he's done for her. He's not, that's not why he's doing it. He's laying down his life, even if she can't repay him with, with uh, praise or thanks. Um, some people who are broken and lost in the brambles aren't even able to recognize the gift they've been given when, they, when you go after them. When you bring your, the presence of Jesus who is in you into their life, um, you may not ever get the, the thanks that, that you really deserve for the heroic way you've entered into their story. But that's not what motivates, motivates us anyway. We're motivated to simply give, again, because we have the heart of Jesus in us, and that's how he operates. So uh, just to close off here, I love the way the Apostle Paul describes what this kind of life is like. And just remember again, um, the parable that we started out with, Tolstoy's parable, uh, the, the uh, difficulty and hardship that the king goes through, the danger even of binding up the wounds of, his, of an enemy who wanted to kill him, all of these things that, that he's, he's on this uh, path to try to discover the answer to these great questions. And, and, uh, and, and his path leads him into danger. <laughs> and uh, it reminds me of what, how the Apostle Paul describes our life. It's in, this is in uh, his second letter to the believers in Corinth in chapter 6. Here's what he says. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience our kindness, but the Holy Spirit within us, by, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love, we faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We're ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We've been beaten, but we've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We're poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, yet we have everything. That is what it means to live with a mindset of where would Jesus be instead of what would Jesus do. When we ask where would Jesus be, we are by definition plunging ourselves into the world that Paul just describes. And we get both the surface difficulty and challenge that that represents, but the deeper joy that Paul is talking about. He can't stop doing what he's doing because his life has been so invigorated and made alive by getting involved with uh, the people who most need to be set free from their captivity, the people who most need to find healing, and there's nothing more uh, powerful in our life to do things together with Jesus 
and to see him move and do the things that are impossible for us to do, to bring hope and healing when there's, there's uh, no way we could have done that on our own. Doing it together with him means we bring him with us into these environments. There you have it, gang. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out all the links on our podcast page for all the Jesus-centered special Christmas gift things you could hope for. So you just need to go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're going to look for season four, episode 48. Season four, episode 48. And then uh, you'll see all the links you need there. Again, this is a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.